Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, as many of you know, after listening to the syllabus, uh, we're talking about Marty Scorsese. Before I dive into who's that knocking at my door, I want to talk about Marty. Because I think we need to understand his background to understand some of his early work and even some of his later work to a certain extent. So Marty's a third-generation Italian-American. His grandparents came straight off the boat, landed in Ellis Island, settled in Manhattan on the west side, lower east, no, on the lower east side on Elizabeth Street. And that neighborhood grew up to be much like a Sicilian neighborhood you would find or a Sicilian village you would find uh, on the other side of the pond. Well, we say that for England. Anyway, you know, just just there on the island off the boot. So he grew up with a sense of what it was to what it meant to be Italian. He lived in this in this little neighborhood, didn't really venture much outside that neighborhood. It was it was his world. And in that world was still the values of Italy, the idea is that you trust family above all else, um, even the church. You don't even trust the church that much. In fact, he says that his parents weren't really that religious, but there was still a sense of Catholicism that that was inherent in the neighborhood. This, you know, the ideals of respect and loyalty, etc. But being in the Lower East Side in Manhattan, there was La Cosa Nostra, uh, this thing of ours, the mafia, the mob, uh, whatever you want to call it, that was prevalent there. So he knew people who were connected. He knew people who were part of the mafia. Uh, and so he also grew up with a sense of violence, very random Seemingly, if you weren't there, very random, sudden acts of violence all around him his entire life. So Marty had this very old world connection, this very old world sensibility about him, you know, very similar to what his his grandparents and great grandparents would have experienced in Sicily. However, Marty was also raised as a cinephile. He loved movies. His dad loved movies. His dad took him to movies all the time. And when television first really hit the U.S., the New York stations broadcast a lot of movies because they didn't have enough content to fill the time. And since they knew that a lot of Italians lived in New York, they broadcast a lot of old Italian movies, a lot of Roberto Rossellini, a lot of Vittorio De Sica, uh, Lucchino Visconti, you know, the old Italian neorealists who came up after World War II. In a very broken country. But he also loved a lot of American films. He loved John Ford Westerns and and he loved the crime movies that Warner Brothers was putting out and he loved Vincente Minnelli uh, musicals and you know a lot of a lot of movies. So he was surrounded by by this growing thriving industry that he was able to view the final results from and he was obsessed with the movies of his day. And it got to the point where in the 50s and 60s, you know, when uh, foreign films were coming into New York um, in these little art house theaters, etc., you know, he'd go see the Ingmar Bergman films and he'd go see the, the Francois Truffaut films and the Jean-Luc Godard and everything. 
So he was experiencing what we now refer to as film history on a daily basis. And this path leads him to study at NYU where he's the first of his family to go to college. And NYU is now known for its film program largely because of Marty Scorsese. But at the time, there was one professor and one sort of film appreciation class. It wasn't even a, it wasn't even a program at the time. It just, there was a class where you watched movies. But that professor helped fuel Marty's love for the cinema. And the professor's passion for the art form only sparked more of it in Marty. And so as Marty and a few others kind of gather around this professor, this professor is then able to do more and more things for them, is able to provide more classes, is able to get a little bit more funding to get a little bit of gear, etc. So by the time Marty graduates, he's hanging around the school a little bit doing some not official but semi-postgraduate work. And he does this, f- this film called Bring On the Dancing Girls, which is about 45 minutes long, maybe 50, I can't remember. And it's the story about a young man from Marty's neighborhood who wanders through life with his friends. And it's pretty much all it is. But this movie comes at a time when Marty's struggling with a conflict between how he was raised and how he wants to be. See, you need to remember, he's coming from this old world background, but he's being transplanted, transplanted into a liberal arts university where there's this very new world of the, what the rest of the world is experiencing as the 60s going on. So he's got NYU and Little Italy in tension within himself. So he makes a movie that kind of reflects this old world life that he's trying to, to sift through. And at first he wants to shoot it on 35mm black and white because he's been watching the Michelangelo Antonioni films and the Federico Fellini films, and that's what those are shot on. But then when they get the camera, they realize how limiting that format is, considering that they're often shooting in real practical locations like tiny little apartments. They don't have the space for that massive camera. And the lenses for the camera and the stock for the camera aren't very light sensitive. They're what we call slow. And they don't have enough lights or even the ability to power big enough lights to get a good exposure for most of the stuff that they want to shoot, especially inside. You know, and then this camera's massive and he doesn't have enough room to move the camera. Um, and there's all these lights all everywhere and there's barely enough room to even put the actors. So eventually they scrap the 35 millimeter idea and just bring in a little 16 millimeter Aeroflex, which are these fairly new cameras at the time but they're smaller, they're portable, they're faster, and you can actually make a movie with them. In fact, uh, one of Marty's inspirations, John Cassavetes, was doing that in New York at the time. And remember, at this time in the 60s, New York is not a center for anything but television. People didn't make movies in New York. People made movies in California. They didn't do it in New York. But then John Cassavetes comes around with his 16-millimeter cameras making movies about life in New York in New York, Now, all of a sudden, that's kind of opened up this idea for young independent filmmakers like Marty Scorsese, like, wait a minute, I can do that, too. So he shoots mostly on weekends, and it takes the whole winter to shoot the movie. Um, He's, you know, the only locations he can get are chosen by 
uh, accessibility, not what he actually wanted to do. He's gonna, you know, he's like trying to get like his uh, his parents' apartment for a day, or or uh, the apartment his friend lives in. You know, the hallway of that apartment. You know, it's just whatever's available. Basically, he's going through all the issues of a first independent film without you know without a budget, without anything. A lot of the same things that I went through a couple summers ago. A couple summers ago, whom. Yeah, a couple summers ago trying to make a, uh, a Shakespeare film. Hopefully I can share that with you all very soon. And once it's completed, this 50-ish minute film gets a really bad reception. He screens it at the New York Film Festival, and one of the quotes, or, or one of the notes he gets back is, uh, basically it says, it's pretty clear that you're living aesthetically beyond your means. You're trying to make a movie... And you have this very clear vision for it that you can't support with what you have available. So after this, his professor helps him figure out a way to give it a little bit more structure and story, which they're hoping will not only make it now feature length, but will also also make it more interesting, better to watch. And this film lives on. He's, quote, completed the movie, and now he's going back to the well. He's taking the same project but expanding on it, making it bigger, making it hopefully better. But now, but now he also has to figure out how to live a life. He has to figure out how to, how to support himself. He has a wife. Um, and, but he's so stubborn, he's only going to do it by breaking into the industry. He's not going to go down to where his dad works in the garment district and just get a job. No, he's got to figure out how to make money in the industry. He's only going to make movies or commercials or television shows or whatever he can get his hands on, whatever, anyone who will even hire him just as a tech. He's got to get those jobs. And he's also trying to finish this movie on the side. So they finally get close, finally get close to a finished project. They've been straining his main actor, by the way, Harvey Keitel. Uh, they've been streaming Harvey Keitel along. Harvey's working as a court stenographer and is, like, really upset at them that, like, he, that he's being called back to shoot all these other scenes and all this stuff. Um, so they finally get close to a finished project, which is what you can go find today if you track down who's that knocking at my door. And they get a distributor, somebody who likes the movie enough to go sell it around to some theaters. But this guy says they have to have a nudity scene. So Marty arranges, shoot a nudity scene, because that means the movie gets made, or the movie gets released. And that scene, the last scene they shoot in the film, was shot four years after the project was started back at NYU. So the movie finally gets released in 1967. That means he started shooting in 1960. Three, when it was still called Brain on the Dancing Girls. Now it's called Who's That Knocking at My Door? And this version is screened at the, at the Chicago Film Fest and gets good reviews, including one from Roger Ebert. And this film, of course, goes on to launch the career of the great Marty Scorsese as we know him today. Now, Marty admits that this film really taught him about his limitations as a filmmaker at that time and where he needed to grow. And let's face it, isn't that what a first film should be? Isn't that what it should be about? You experimenting, trying out a lot of different things. There's a lot of really bold aesthetic choices in Who's That Knocking at My Door. But it's all very, I don't know. It's clear that it's not being done in the hands of a master. It's being done in the hands of a talented amateur, which is, 
as you may or may not remember, similar language that Hitchcock described between the difference between his two versions of uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Anyway. Um, so it really taught Marty that that he's limited in his abilities, and it also taught him that he needed to go find people to collaborate with. And there's another key I want you to remember. This is something that I fall short of every single time I take on a major project because I never have the money to pay anybody. I figure, well, okay, I can't bring anybody to do that because I can't pay them, so I'll just do it myself. That's the wrong way to go about it. You need people to help you. You need people who know more than you in certain areas to help you make the best product possible. That's the way this works. Look at the credits. There's hundreds of people in the credits. Every one of those people have a job. And the reason every one of those people have a job is because it takes special knowledge and special skills to be able to accomplish each one of those jobs. You can't do everything by yourself. And that's what Marty learned after making his first film. One of the other limitations that Marty learned was that you can make something abstract, but it has to be captured through physical elements. It's physical people in a physical space going through a physical lens, creating an exposure at that time on a physical piece of film. And there is a method and an artistry to making those physical elements into something abstract that the audience can think about or can feel or what have you. And that's the hardest part about being a true master of the medium. How do you get those physical things to become an abstract? And some people would probably say that's what Marty's been been searching for the rest of his career. But it's that idea of how do I create an emotion? How do I represent a psychological state of mind? How do I represent an idea there on the screen with these very physical, as Marty called them, hard elements? So that's, that's Marty's first film. It's a half-forgotten movie, actually a largely forgotten movie, that's filled with a lot of things that Marty looks at and says, wow, I could have done that better. Wow, I wish I'd done that instead. Uh, a movie he's really not happy with. He, calls, he, he says that it's just practice, that there's uh, failures. And there's this learning curve over the course of four years that's captured on film for everybody to see. Four years of hard work, and that's Marty's first film. It's not perfect. It's not a masterpiece. It's not wonderful. And your first film probably isn't going to be either because it takes... It takes experience to understand how to use the medium to your advantage. But you don't get there by quitting, by not trying, you know. And some of us, it may take us four years to get that first feature off the ground. But you got to stick with it. And every one of your mistakes is going to be up there on the screen for everyone to see. Trust me, I know it. I've experienced it. I understand it. If any of you ever watch the Shakespeare film that I eventually release, uh, you're going to see every single one of my mistakes up there. There's plenty of them. But if it wasn't for this movie, then Marty never makes Mean Streets. And Mean Streets isn't anywhere near as good as it turns out to be. And even though Who's That Knocking gets him in the door, 
Mean Streets is what helped him take off. Mean Streets became a launch pad, a calling card, something he could always go back to and say, yeah, but I did that. A movie that let people trust him. But that's because of the of the experiences he had on Who's That Knocking at My Door. So that's all I got for, for Marty's first film. I just want to thank you for returning to Hitchcock University for our second semester. Please give us a rating or review wherever, or, uh, wherever it is that you attend class, whether that's through SoundCloud or TuneIn Radio or Stitcher or Google Play or Apple Podcasts or what have you. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, please reach out to me at, uh, at my email, hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. Or you can reach me on on Facebook. Uh, please go like that page. Follow us. I'm hoping to use that page more and more this year so that uh, to keep in touch with my listeners, as well as the Twitter uh, Hitchcock underscore U as in University. Uh, thanks again for attending. Uh, we will talk to you again in two weeks, where we will talk about Boxcar Bertha, and two weeks after that, we will talk about Mean Streets, the aforementioned uh, classic. Uh, Thanks again.